Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of this Seriously Risky Business podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, this podcast is a discussion of Tom Uren's weekly Seriously Risky Biz newsletter, uh, which is produced by him uh, and it is supported by Lawfare with some help from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. And uh, this week's edition of the podcast and the newsletter are both sponsored by Corelight, who make the network security monitor uh, for security purposes. They maintain Zeek, the open source network security monitor. The commercial one has more bells and whistles and you can find them at corelight.com. Tom Uren, it's good to chat to you again, my friend. It's been a little while while I've been overseas. <laughs> G'day, Patrick. Welcome back. Thank you so much. So uh, I've got your newsletter for this week sitting in front of me, and uh, you've covered two items in depth. And uh, let's get into the first one now. You've titled it, Living Off the Land is the New Normal. We've heard organizations like NSA really having, I don't know, would you, would you describe it as conniptions about uh, Chinese APT groups really embracing uh, living off the land techniques? And you've found a report from the security firm Huntress, which really kind of underscores what they've been saying, which is attackers using living off the land techniques. Like that's the new normal. Yeah, so quite a few articles I've written over the past six months there have been what I would describe as very concerning hacks. And, uh, for example, the ones at MGM and Caesars Palace, uh, but also ones that deal with Russian actors and also Chinese APT actors. And they're all using that technique. And what's interesting is that it's the most, I guess, the most concerning actors. So the ones that are either causing a whole heap of just chaos in terms of cybercrime, or are concerning, uh, I guess particularly the Chinese actors are concerning because they're getting into critical infrastructure and there doesn't seem to be any other motive other than potential disruption in case of conflict. And so you've got this tier of very, uh, very worrying actors and they're all using that technique. And this report wasn't aimed at those actors. It was aimed at actors that are affecting small and medium businesses. And they actually quantify the number of incidents that were using just living off the land techniques. And so no malware, and it's more than half of incidents. So you can very clearly say it's not just a high-end thing. It's a universal that's happening across all kinds of actors. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've spent a bit of time on this year, right? Because uh, I think it is definitely a trend. So the one where you were talking about like possible infrastructure disruption by the Chinese, that was what Microsoft called Vault Typhoon. And that really freaked out the USIC because that I think they turned up at, in a uh, telco in Guam and, and a few other places and certainly were doing, uh, yeah, living off the land style attacks. Just for those who don't know, by the way, like it's very easy for us to assume that uh, everyone knows what living off the land means. It means that you're not bringing viruses or malware. It means that, you know, you're hacking into a system or a bunch of systems and you're using things like inbuilt tools in Windows or, you know, very commonly used utilities or whatever. And you're just configuring them in a way or using them in a way uh, that gets you where you need to go. So it's basically a way to hack places without using malware. And uh, yeah, when I was over in uh, uh, the States, you know, about a month ago, we recorded our podcast at the NSA's Cyber Collaboration Center and the center's director, uh, Morgan Adamski, you know, I asked her, like, why do you think this trend is on? And she just said, well, 
you know, people just aren't set up as well to detect uh, threat actors who are living off the land because they are sort of better equipped to deal with things like spotting malicious files, right? So it certainly seems like the trend is on. And I did find it interesting that Huntress is saying it's not just for the APT crews, but it's also for the, you know, smaller targets. Yeah, so one of the more interesting groups I examined in the last year was Guacamaya. Yeah. And they had these uh, <laughs> tremendously detailed videos that they published, which went through all the steps they took to compromise. I think it was some South American mining company. And they were using the same techniques. And I, I remember quite vividly, they went back into the network three different times and wiped it. So they were motivated by environmental concerns and they just didn't like this mining company. But they came up with three different living off the land ways of wiping the same network. <laughs> so there's, I guess, it just goes to show that there's tremendous scope to do these things in all sorts of varied and different ways. And, you know, when you've got the entire range from activists through to APTs that are tasked by military concerns, um, you know, everyone's doing it. Yeah, that's it. Everyone's doing it. All the kids <laughs> are right. on lolbins. Uh, it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy time. It's a it's a lolbin crisis. Um, so let's move on to the next thing that you wrote about this week, which is looking at, and, and it's something that we touched on briefly in the weekly show with Adam Boileau yesterday. Basically, we've had firms both in the UK and the US who do, like law firms who do property conveyance, right? So they help organize property and real estate transactions. Yeah, two separate firms, you know, suffered uh, ransomware attacks, which stopped them in their tracks. And then all of a sudden, property transactions weren't settling. And it's just amazing that we had two of these happen in the one week on different continents. Presumably, I think different, was it different actors or was it the same actor? It's not clear. So that part is also interesting because one part of me wants to say these for ransomware and cybercrime gangs, if you can extort these groups, you really get a lot of leverage because all of a sudden you've got all the people who they rely on who are saying, you know, fix this as quickly as you can. Now, I don't think that they were deliberately targeted, though. It seems like one of the theories is that they both had Citrix Netscaler yep. and both were uh, not the quickest at patching them. So that that's my working hypothesis. As soon as we saw the mass exploitation kicking off, it was so clear that this was going to be an absolute nightmare and it's uh, totally panned out that way. But, you know, really what your piece argues here is that you know, key service providers like this have got to lift their game. And I, and I think this comes back to an age-old discussion that uh, Adam and I have been having over the years, which is when it comes to figuring out what is critical infrastructure, you kind of need to broaden your mind a little bit, right? Because you, you wouldn't think sitting down to do a, um, uh, you know, to work out a cyber strategy, a national cyber strategy, you might not think to include conveyance firms, uh, as, as you know, this critical part of the economy. But the fact is, if you knock them offline, your property market grinds to a halt. And that is a big ticket item in any economy. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the core of the argument, isn't it? Yeah, so there's, I suppose there's two sides. One side is that in a crisis, people tend to band together. So it feels like, at least in the UK, there was enough people affected that people were going, okay, we're suspending normal behavior. We're going to be nice to each other, figure out how to muddle through this. And in the end, everyone will kind of be okay. 
Um, so that's the very optimistic, positive view of this. I think really it causes a tremendous amount of angst for people at the time because they're, they're people who are literally saying, I've bought a house, I'm paying for it, like the bank has issued me a mortgage, I'm actually you know, on the hook for this amount of money and I don't know where the money's gone <laughs> and I've got no guarantee when I'm actually going to be able to move into the house. And so the other side of it is that it does have huge impacts and I think if not enough, it, it, you can get this weird effect where if not enough people are affected, it's really quite disastrous. When everyone's affected, you muddle through. If it just affects a small percentage, a small percentage of people absolutely get screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They get screwed. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, this whole Citrix, you know, event kind of reminds me a bit about the Excellian file transfer appliance attack uh, attacks. Yeah. And what was the other one? Move it. Yeah. yeah Which was, was, you know, the biggest, the biggest one in history yeah. or whatever. I mean, this is just the ransomware equivalent to the move it attack where you've got an easy entry into deploy ransomware in an, in an environment. So instead of just, you know, grabbing all the files from a file transfer appliance, you're actually, uh, you know, going into an enterprise and, and ransomwareing them and causing them serious disruption. But, you know, the MO has that overlap, right? Which is that there's a bug that you quickly weaponize and turn into a, into a campaign. What's real funny though is like people, you know, in industry working for the big companies like Symantec and McAfee would often talk about how people, you know, these hackers are uh, weaponizing bugs uh, very quickly after uh, vendors release patches, but it never really happened at scale, right? Like they, they were predicting that for a decade and a half, but it, it, it feels like now we are finally there in this paradigm uh, where a vendor can release a patch. And that's what happened in this case. Citrix patched it and then people reverse engineered the patch figured out the bug and then bang, we're, we're, we've got this sort of mini ransomware crisis affecting companies and government all over the world. I, I, I think we're going to see a lot of this next year is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, well, in these cases, it's not even clear that there's ransomware being deployed. And so the kind of the victim company will say things like, we've shut off access to our systems and locked them down. And it's even just the threat of the possibility of ransomware that causes the disruption. It's so the response guess, to the intrusion and yeah. they're going very radical with the response to prevent the ransomware being deployed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think that neither company has confirmed it's ransomware and it feels a bit like 10 years ago they would have just tried to muddle through and fix the intrusion um, and wear the risk of something worse happening because that worse was just data theft. Yeah. And now the worse is, well, our systems get locked up for potentially quite a long time. It feels like every incident is a potential ransomware incident, even yeah. when it's not. Well, DP, DP World is a good example of that. And I was so happy to see in your newsletter that uh, DP World has confirmed that they weren't ransomware. Now, this is the Australian port operator that controls about 40% of all of the containers coming in and out of Australia by sea. So obviously a very, very important company here. And uh, yeah, they they had an incident where they had to shut down their ports basically for a few days and the national uh, coordination mechanism was invoked and we got the full-on yep. you know, federal and state government response uh, to this and, and it all worked out. But you know, I couldn't find any any reports that ransomware had actually been deployed, just that it was exactly like you said, like they pulled the pin when they detected some sort of intrusion. And 
uh, they've now confirmed that that's the case. And also, it looks like they were also another Citrix victim. And Claire O'Neill, our Home Affairs and Cybersecurity Minister, uh, was quoted in the Financial Review the other day, giving them a, a solid kicking, actually, for failing <laughs> to patch that bug, which I think it's just a, a wild sign of the times when, um, you know, you've got a government, a fairly senior government minister saying to someone, why you know patch Citrix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, so interestingly, ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, just I think two days ago came out with their updated basic recommendations for companies. They're called the Essential 8. And they've stepped up patching timelines. They recommend that if a vulnerability has been exploited or there is a proof of concept available, that you patch it within 48 hours. And so that seems like it's a recommendation for the times. So yeah. in, in all these cases we've talked about, DP World, the two housing ones in the UK and the US, that vulnerability was there. It wasn't patched. We don't know if that was how the criminals got in. But if they've been patched in two days, it, it potentially could have saved a whole lot of angst. Yeah. I mean, that's one bit of advice. The other advice would be don't run you know, Fortinet or Citrix at your, at your, at your edge. I mean, uh, it seems like they're more... Yeah, you know. well, it seems like if you've got some, an edge device, you know, you, I think you have to be prepared to mitigate it very quickly, regardless sure. of Sure, I mean, is. there are solutions these days, though, like, you know, one of them is a, is a sponsor of ours, but they're not the only one who do this. But you've got, like, these um, network edge appliances that won't even open ports until someone has signed in via SSO, right? So right. they do their Okta auth and then they get a port. So like there are more modern solutions um, to this problem, but, you know, patching within 48 hours certainly is going to put you in a much better place. So I agree with the advice from ASD there. I'm just wondering <laughs> if it's going to be quite enough. Um, but Tom, you're in. Fascinating stuff, mate. Always uh, great to read your newsletter. Great conversation too, mate. And uh, we may or may not be back next week to do one of these because we're not sure if we've got an edition going out next week. But uh, I'll, I'll be catching you soon regardless. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick.